you know you have a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. The Restory Show, episode, wait, season four, <laughs> episode 19. Today's podcast is brought to you by Jesus Every Day, which is my new book um, that is a devotional, 365, actually 366 days full of devotions where you will read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You'll get the whole scope of the Bible and every day you'll have a prayer to pray and the, the prayer is based on the scripture. So it's my gift to you, to my listeners and to my readers who have asked me for years to compile a book of my prayers. So here they are, and I am so excited to share them with you. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Patreon, which is a little way to patronize the arts up to, you know, a dollar a month, up to $20, $30, $40 a month, whatever you want to give to help with all the behind the scenes stuff that goes on in the Restory show that costs money. And I don't make any money on this podcast. So uh, it would be great if you could help out. Just go to marydemuth.com forward slash 4-19 and hear more about today's guest and also to see how you can sponsor on Patreon. And I also will be giving you a piece of art every month. So that's kind of cool. So I am excited to welcome Bonnie Bolander. And she also has been one of the people that I have met in one of my writing mentoring intensives, where I walk people through the entire writing process from zero to hero, basically, from not knowing anything to knowing everything about publishing, writing, promoting all those kinds of things about writing your book. The next one will be in February. So if you're interested in that, go to booklaunchmentor.com. You should be able to see it there. Anyway, uh, Bonnie and I met that way. She has an incredible story of loss, but that loss has catapulted her into the arms of Jesus and has made her very strong. So without further ado, here is Bonnie. Hey everyone, this is Mary with The Restory Show, and today I'm really excited to have Bonnie Bolander with me. We met each other at a writing intensive that she came to last July, and uh, she has an amazing story. So Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us on The Restory Show today. Thanks so much for having me. It is my pleasure. I'm really excited to share your story because it's it's a good one. It's a hard one, but God is good. So tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing. Just kind of give us a snapshot of where you grew up and who you are and what you're doing today. All right. Well, I was born in the 60s in Southern California. I was born into a very loving but pretentious home. Uh, my parents began with very little and quickly found success in many more ways than just one. My mom was very Baptist woman, very legalistic. My dad was Catholic. Hmm. And so they found a real nice compromise in the Lutheran church. And it was important that my mom stick to her church roots, but it was also important that we climbed the social ladder as well. So on Sunday mornings, we would waltz out of our beautiful home in our best clothes, get to the nice Cadillac and drive to church where we would sit and uh, we would put our big check in the plate and we'd shake the pastor's hand and we'd walk with our pretty smiles past the building that was named after us and get back into our fancy home and go home. And um, I didn't really know any better or any different. On Sunday mornings, we would really waltz out of our beautiful home in our best clothes and we'd get in our Cadillac and drive to church where we'd sit and we'd be well behaved and we'd put our big check in the plate. 
We'd shake the pastor's hand and then we'd walk past the building that bore our name, get back into our fancy car and go back home. And uh, I didn't really know any better or any different. That's kind of what you did in the 60s and 70s. You, you went to church on Sunday mornings. And our home was really no different than any other. But we didn't read the Bible. We didn't translate the information from Sunday into any other day of our week. But we went to church whenever the doors were open. And I even attended a church school, the church school that was associated with our church. During the week, I spent my time after school at various lessons. I took dance lessons and voice lessons and instrumental lessons and private and group classes. And Fridays were always a recital. So I was on stage every single Friday night and I loved it. I performed well and my parents were proud. And in my early teens, I decided I really didn't want to perform anymore. But my mom really wanted to show off her little performer. So I really wanted to please my parents, but yet I really wanted to please my friends as well, which proved extremely difficult. Um, I don't believe I was truly a believer yet, but I feel like I still wrestled a whole lot with that whole um, Romans chapter seven, where Paul talks about doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing the things he knows he, he should do. And that was a very big part of my junior high years. And uh, so when my parents or my mom especially wanted me to perform, I would really kind of get myself some liquid courage and um, Hmm. I would go. And before I knew it, I was off to reform school at the age of 13. Now, mind you, it was really never referred to as reform school. It was a very conservative, very strict Christian school um, on the East Coast. And I was in California So uh, my mother sent me over to uh, this very conservative school. It was actually a college that had a high school uh, attached to it. And that's where I spent uh, my high school years. So you like totally went to reform school. (laughs) Yeah, basically, because, you know, to me, I kind of thought I was a Christian because I did all the church things. But when I got there, I recognized that... um, it really was just a place to keep me safe and to make me do what I needed to be doing. <laughs> and um, the neat thing about it, though, was that in ninth grade, when I went, that's not only where I was reformed, but I was also really transformed as well in my heart. So God used those circumstances to bring me to himself. In high school, that's when I really came to understand that I was a sinner and I was separated from God And I finally understood in my heart that Jesus came to die for my sin and my life. And I needed to trust him and his work to reconcile me back to God. So on February 9th, 1978, I asked Jesus into my really good heart. And that's kind of um, that's kind of a, a hallmark of my life. I really prided myself on being good. And uh, good can really keep us in danger when it when it comes to looking at how we can please God and perform for Him. So um, my sophomore year in college, I stayed on at this school. I continued on through college. My sophomore year began with an engagement to my high school boyfriend, the death of my father, and the introduction to my future husband. So I can just say that we serve an amazing God a patient, loving, long-suffering God, 
a God that always has our best interests at heart, a God whose ways are far above ours. I could not understand why he chose to take my precious daddy from me, but I can say that through it all, even as a new believer, I trusted him. And you can imagine somewhere in there that there was a broken engagement as well. Yeah, I was kind of reading between the lines. (laughs) Yes, I say praise God for that. (laughs) So about a little little over a year later, um, my husband, my current husband, Bob Bolander, invited me into his really great heart. And we were married Christmas of our senior year in college. Um, we went, we stayed on a little bit longer and he got his master's degree there and then answered a call to the ministry up in Michigan. So that was oh, a really long time ago, but about, oh, I'd say 19 years, three babies, two churches and one really polished life later, I found myself in an emergency room about to confront two of the most painful and horrendous realities of my life. And that's where we're going to begin the story, right? (laughs) So you've shared a little bit about, um, you know, how you grew up and, and I can kind of, because I know your story, I'm really excited about hearing what comes next because I know what comes next, but it's really great to hear your background because you can see the vestiges of this idea that you needed to be perfect and have the perfect life and be good and appear to not have needs that when we get to this story, the one you're going to share today, it's going to show like why you had those seeds and what happened in the aftermath of everything blowing up. So tell us a little bit about why you were in the emergency room and what the circumstances were. Okay. Well, We had three children. We had a daughter and then two sons. And uh, when our daughter was 14, she uh, went on a cruise with our family. This was about a little over a year prior to our emergency room visit. So we went on, uh, she went on this cruise with some of my family members. We were not on the cruise. And um, when we picked her up or when we reunited after that trip, my husband and I could tell that something was just really not right. We had our suspicions, but but we didn't have any hard and fast answers. And uh, through the next nine, 10 months, um, we would see changes in our daughter. We would ask, we would prod, we would plead for answers. Um, we would poke our noses in places that, you know, they supposedly didn't belong. And, um, About nine months after that cruise, our daughter did tell us that she had been molested by a crew member on that cruise. Um, And she used the word molested. She downplayed everything except for her fear. Um, She took full responsibility because she said that the, she told the man that she was 15 instead of 14. So in her, she was taking full responsibility and she was, was completely uh, convinced that he was going to come get us or come get her if she ever told us what had happened. And so for nine months, she sat um, kind of in her own head uh, in the enemy's lies and uh, really thought about who she was and what she had done or what she had allowed to have happen to her. And she began to believe the lies of the enemy. And after she told us, um, she began to act out on those lies. 
that she had really taken on into her heart. And so that night in the emergency room, it was December 1st, and it was uh, 2000, year 2001, she had attempted suicide that night. And of course, my husband was a pastor. We, uh, I really had just really made it my life's goal and ambition to make sure that God was completely glorified in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. And in my mind, the only way to do that was to be perfect. Wow. That's a pretty high calling there. (laughs) Yes. And it was hard to live up to. Because of that, when something like this enters your world, you can only hide it and cover it up and make excuses for it for so long. And so that night, as we were in the emergency room, she had uh, downed a whole bottle of Tylenol and a whole bottle of some prescription pills that I had had in the house. I had had an accident just shortly before that. And so this combination, there she is in the hospital. And I would say that the sight of her thrashing around and spewing such horrible confessions to us was just devastating to me. But what really brought me to my knees was the conversation in my own heart that was going on as my daughter was just spewing forth um, all these just really rancid confessions. She was on a gurney. We were divided by the other patients just by a, a curtain in the emergency room. And what was I thinking? This is what I was thinking. What will they think about us? What will we tell the church in the morning? How will we look? What are people going to think about our parenting skills? Was I thinking about Bethany? (laughs) Not really. I was thinking about how others would perceive our perception of perfection. And that night, really, um, God did a, a started a work in my heart. He began to really reveal to me that my heart was desperately wicked and filled with piles of pride. And um, he was going to use this struggle in our life, this very, very public trial to um, transform my heart into something that would really just recognize who he is and who I am. Wow. That's such an amazing thing to hear and just to know how, also how desperate you must have felt and how helpless. And you probably realized there was nothing you could do to fix the situation other than, of course, love her and pray. But what an amazing insight that you had at that moment. Now, things got better and worse and worse and better. So continue the story and let us know, because I know that I would love to be able to say that this was tied up in a nice little bow and God made everything easy because... That would be so great. But oftentimes in our stories, they're a lot messier than that. Yes. Um, She went from the emergency room into the intensive care unit. This was a Saturday night. And so our deacon, our head deacon and his wife came up to the hospital. And that evening after she was transferred, we decided that we would kind of have a, a little concoction of the church of the truth of what we would tell our church in the morning. And we would just say that she had an adverse reaction to the medication that she took, which was technically true. Um, It just kind of fueled this perception of perfection. And so the next morning, we were, of course, at the hospital and our church met on Sunday morning like they do. And our deacon told them that 
but they had been watching our daughter and our family over the last nine months and they weren't a bunch of stupid idiots. And so (laughs) they kind of put two and two together and they knew what happened. And that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, we began to be just flooded with these people, these precious, precious people loving on our family and never bringing any condemnation or any kind of judgment to us, but just being there as the body of Christ. And and what a joy and what a privilege it was just be a part of, of that body at that moment. Our daughter was transferred from an emergency room to a psychiatric hospital for troubled teens on the other side of our state. Um, it was a Christian organization and um, she spent a week there and we just thought after this week everything's going to be great everything's going to be fixed and we will just move on with our normal life and so um, we had a counselor in our church at the time and she uh, began offering services she had already been seeing Bethany uh, before the emergency room visit and so we continued with that and uh, continued on our little life. And in January, this was December, and then in January of the next year, the beginning of the year hit with a very hard reality and another very serious suicide attempt. After that attempt, we knew that this was not just some cry for help. It wasn't just uh, some ploy to get attention. It was really something serious. And we began really seriously looking for someplace that could not only help us, but also keep her safe uh, from herself. And so uh, we entered into 15 months of rehab. It was not technically an an inpatient program. It was an outpatient program in the state of uh, Michigan. However, it required a lot. I can't even describe, and if you want me to describe it, I can, but I can't even begin to to just describe the things that were stripped from our lives during this time in this whole rehab. Uh, Would you like me to elaborate a bit? (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, let us know, because I think uh, other people can relate to this idea of being stripped away, whatever the circumstance. I think we've all been through those kinds of circumstances before. Okay, well, um, the rehab facility was based on the 12-step program, a lot of accountability and a lot of peer accountability and involvement. And one of the biggest things that they did, because they were not technically an inpatient program, they had a system of hosting where the families of the clients would open their homes and have those kids in their homes um, during the week and on the weekend. Our home happened to be about an hour and a half from the facility. So we were required to host on the weekends, which meant um, I was required to be in my home with mostly strangers at all times, every second of the weekend. Um, I was not able to attend church. I was not able to do my little special touches as a hostess because that's one of my spiritual gifts. I wasn't able to really, that time was not my own. It was poured into those clients. And for the first four months of that job, uh, we did not even have our own daughter in our home. And so um, God even used this circumstance to begin stripping me 
of the things that I did do well and the things that I prided myself on and uh, the things that I enjoyed doing and the activities that I felt called to be a part of, a pastor's wife and being involved in our worship our worship team at church and that kind of thing. I was not able to be involved in any of those things. And um, my home was not my own. It was, everything was locked up. Everything was dismantled. Um, <laughs> it was, it was truly um, a humbling experience. And at the same time, because so many things were stripped away from my heart, my identity, my circumstances, um, I began to see no matter what circumstance God puts us into, he is always going to give us abundant opportunity to serve him. And it may not always be the way we thought we needed to serve him. And so these kids that would be in my home, one of the approved books was the Bible. And one of the approved um, musical genres was Christian music. And so I could have that freely flowing in my home all weekend. And I could read them the Bible and they could read theirs and they could ask me questions. And I began to uh, see this little mission field in my home that I never in a million years thought uh, would be my mission field because I was so part of the church and the church was always in my home. And now the world has come into my home and God uh, really, really, really taught me through that time uh, that, that opportunity to serve him are abundant if we look for him and if we take the circumstances that he's given us. Um, when the children of Israel are found uh, wandering in exile in Jeremiah, he tells them, you're in a place where you don't belong. You're in a place that you're not comfortable, but I've put you there and I want you to build your life. I want you to make relationships. I want you to plant your gardens and build your homes. And in so doing, you're going to turn back to me and you're going to call on me and you're going to find me when you seek me. And that's where I found myself during that season of our lives, just in a little bit of exile, where God was just calling me back to himself, asking me to trust him and his heart in spite of my circumstances. That's such a, a beautiful thing to know because, oh my goodness, we all get um, off track in those areas. So I love what he taught you when you had everything stripped away. And so then after 15 months, was everything hunky-dory and awesome? <laughs> <laughs> then what happened? I so wish it was. Um, in those 15 months, we really began to pray about what God would have for us um, past this rehab um, season of our lives. And we really felt like God was calling us at least temporarily to step outside of the ministry um, just to heal, to focus on our family. At the same time, I had gotten involved uh, way prior to any of this. I had been involved with a direct sales um, company that's based in Texas. They had taken note of my husband and his gifts and abilities and had been had begun to start um, asking him if he could ever see himself in a ministry outside of the pulpit, which was really interesting because at the time that they first asked him that, he said, um, I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do, but no. <laughs> and then all of this with our daughter came up. And so we began really entertaining the idea of perhaps moving down to Texas from Michigan just to take some time outside of the pulpit ministry 
to focus on our family. So that's what we did. And just prior to Bethany graduating from this rehab program, um, our family made the move down to Dallas, Texas area. And um, she joined us about three months later. And then she was in her junior year of high school and had about nine or weeks left for that year. And uh, everything was going great when she moved back down. She was healthy. She was clean. She was happy. She was really pouring into people, really looking for ways that she could encourage hurting people. And that's really a part of who she was, um, just her personality. And she was just really a beautiful light. Her smile was just gorgeous. And she just had a heart of gold and she loved people. Um, about seven weeks into her her move down here, a very casual uh, bus stop acquaintance committed suicide. And it really, it really shook her up quite a bit. And she upped her her vocalness about her struggles. And she really became really good friends with this young lady. And uh, this young lady was wrestling with demons of her own. And two weeks after the bus stop uh, ordeal, that young lady committed suicide as well. And that suicide didn't just rattle her, it rocked her to her core. And uh, from then on, that was the end of May, the next two months um, would be just a heavy, heavy battle of spiritual warfare in our home and uh, watching our daughter just descend into a very dark place. And it culminated with her taking her own life on July uh, 30th, 2003. It was a long, hard two months with more revelation for our own hearts and more revelation into the pain and agony that she was living in. And so our story, um, it doesn't end with the fact that our daughter committed suicide. It really um, begins again because God has just this amazing ability to redeem and restore uh, the broken parts of our hearts and our lives. And when he does that, he can be, he can bring beauty from the darkest places. So on that day, take us a little bit back. Who discovered her and how did you initially react? And how did God begin the healing process in the aftermath of that, of the grief, which must have been thick? Well, about three days prior to her death, we, my husband and I were both in Fort Worth at our company's national convention. Um, if you recall, this was a company that I was involved in, as well as then my husband was brought on board in the corporate office. So we were both involved in this company. And I was really looking forward to a bit of a respite from just this storm that we were in. And I received a phone call in the middle of the Saturday afternoon session to call home. I received a text to call home from my sons. And I called home and found out that she was in the emergency room. So I amazingly and really miraculously found my husband in the Fort Worth Convention Center. We went to the hospital. And uh, that day, as I was in the emergency room with my daughter, she was kind of in and out of consciousness. And I was kind of in a corner of this very large, dark emergency room. And I was illuminated by just one single light 
I had a little tiny notepad with me and I was really praying what to do, what our next steps were. And it was just incredible. I say that that day, peace walked into my room in the person of of the Holy Spirit. And he began to flood my mind with truth from his word, truth that I had spent many, many years of my life memorizing and hiding in my heart. And the truth of that moment and the peace of God through his spirit just truly overwhelmed me. And I was really flooded with a peace that I could not explain. When the Bible says that he will give you peace that passes understanding, I experienced that that day. And along with the peace came really a revelation to me. And and this was it. And it sounds very, very strange to really put into words. But I really felt like his spirit was telling me, she's going to be successful in her attempt. I'm going to be with you. And so the revelation was not so much that she's going to kill herself. The revelation was that God was going to walk beside me in that time. And I felt like God was preparing my heart. And and then three short days later, um, she was successful. And I will have to say with great joy and great hope that God did walk beside me during those days and he walks beside me even today. I felt like God had really refashioned my heart through this two and a half year journey from the first night that we found ourselves in that emergency room to even today or even just after she uh, committed suicide. I felt like God refashioned my heart and um, just molded it into a place that was more accepting of his um, will and his presence in my life and less concerned about the perfection in my own life. And that doesn't mean I'm per- I'm, I'm perfect and not being perfect. <laughs> I still struggle. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I would say that through loss, um, God graciously exposed the pride in my heart. And it manifested itself as a deep-seated need to please, to perform, and to be perfect. It affected my parenting, my relationships, my personal time with God, my identity, and my service. And yet through this journey... God has turned all of those things around, and um, I still struggle. I still wrestle, but um, I come back much quicker to the fact that God is not asking perfection from me. He's asking for just a reliance on Him. It's so good and wow. I mean, I can't. I can't really wrap my mind around that. The loss that that conveys to your family, to you, to I mean, just the years it's taken probably just to get to this place of being able to look back and seeing God's hand in the midst of it. And um, what would you say was the least helpful thing that someone said to you? And what was the most helpful thing during that time of grief? Well, um, I would say that uh, being caught in a trap of perfection um, as a parent And then having one of your children commit suicide is very uh, easy to just bury yourself in mounds of guilt. Like, 
what could we have done better? What could we have done differently? Where did we go wrong? Why weren't we good enough or there enough or love her enough? I mean, we could do that. We could fall into that trap. But I really feel like God kept both my husband and myself from that in the realization that um, the most perfect father ever was, of course, God, the Heavenly Father. And every single one of his children rebelled against him. And that God graciously um, created us with the opportunity to choose. We have opportunity to choose very mundane things every single day, but we also have the opportunity to choose him, to choose to trust him, to choose to follow him, to choose to align ourselves under his will. And that choice is the very thing that brings him glory. If we were a bunch of robots that had to do what he told us, there would be very little glory in that, but he created us with the ability to choose. And so I transfer that over to the fact that my daughter was also created with the ability to choose. And her choice was not what we had hoped for, obviously. But uh, there was a time when I was speaking just a few months before she um, passed. And I was talking about her choices and everything. I'm speaking to an audience And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is speaking to my heart. And he said this. He said, what if her choice is not what you're hoping for? And then he said to me, your choice can be your hope. And uh, the very fact that I have to make a decision every single day to put my hope not in my circumstances, but in my God that not only shows me that I'm in need of a savior every single day, but it also magnifies my God. It shows that he's worth hoping in and trusting. And so I think that perhaps is the biggest thing, the greatest help, and it came from my own husband's lips, uh, just this whole idea that God was perfect and every single one of his children rebelled against him. I'd have to say, you know, after she died, really, if you want to know the truth, the the worst thing that anyone ever told me was, um, yeah, I lost my cat a couple of weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> I, I really oh. couldn't believe that, but I let it go. And that's another thing that God has taught me is, um, you know, people don't know what to do or what to say. And we have friends who go through loss. And it even for us who've gone through loss, it's difficult to know exactly what to say. Um, So God has graciously allowed me to have a forgiving heart in those circumstances because I've lost a cat and a dog and a daughter and they're not the same. (laughs) No, No. they are not the same. So please don't say that to someone. Well, as you look back on this story and all the rich lessons that God has told you, you've kind of hinted at all of this, but um, what advice would you give to someone who has lost uh, someone to suicide? Well, I, I have three bits of advice. Number one, I would advise you and really encourage you to get to know the heart and the character of God uh, through Bible reading, through prayer, uh, through being mentored by someone who perhaps has gone through a similar loss or um 
who you really admire um, as being a very strong believer. Because when we really understand the heart and character of God, we are amazed. It leads us to authentic worship, authentic praise, and authentic service. Uh, We're no longer caught in a trap. For me, it was no longer being caught in a trap of performing for God. But it was out of a heart of gratitude because I caught a glimpse of who he really was. And I was truly, truly amazed. And it also helps us see ourselves for who we really are. In light of God's glory, we see ourselves in a different perspective. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to be honest with God and yourself about your loss and your disappointments. Losing a child brings on a lot of disappointment for expectations, things that we had planned to do with that child later on in life and all of those hopes and dreams. But losing a child to suicide has a very different dimension to it uh, because it's it's enough to us as parents. We feel like we did something wrong or we weren't enough for them. So be honest with God. And in the honesty, be willing to allow him to take you to the deep places of healing. Healing is very different from just moving on. Moving on really kind of stuffs the pain and gets on with your life. But healing wrestles with the pain and even wrestles with God. And it may be a dark place at times, but it brings forth such light, such abundance, and such beauty in your life afterwards. The third thing I would say is walk in confidence after getting to know God, after being honest with him, walk in confidence knowing that you can trust him and that he's going to be able to use your story for his purpose and his glory. I just love that. And I appreciate so much what you're sharing here because it's, it's really about just going back to Jesus. And that is so important. And that can apply to every single one of us, not just those who have lost someone. So as you look back over the past year, so 365 days, what has God done in your life to restore you? Well, um, I'm really excited. It doesn't seem to like really fit maybe but um, it's been 14 years since my daughter passed. So I have a, had a long time to kind of walk this road. And uh, the thing that God has been teaching me this particular year is um, that trials and pain and loss are a part of my life. Obviously, in 14 years, I've experienced other losses. I've experienced other trials and more pain, of course. And you... And your audience, perhaps, um, well, not perhaps, I know they've also experienced those things as well. Most of us belong to some sort of club that we didn't willingly join, whether it be the divorce club or the, you know, the survivor of a rape club or the lost club or, you know, whatever it might be. And so God is teaching me about better. Sometimes life can be good and great. Um, here on this earth, but mostly, mostly it's not. It's not always pleasant. And so he is changing my perspective. That's what he's teaching me. I'm learning to not take loss so personally. And what I mean by that is um, that it's simply a part of living in a broken world with broken people and broken lives. 
that it's not a personal affront to me that God isn't some big bully making bad things happen in my life. And so that's what I mean when I say I'm, I'm learning to not take loss or pain so personally. I still weep. I still hurt. I still wrestle. But I recognize that it's part of just living in a broken world. And um, those who know Christ have something better to look forward to. When my focus is Christ and not my circumstances, my joy isn't rattled and my hope stays intact. And um, there's a beautiful book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews, that talks a lot about better. And in, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're normally um, used to that being called the, the chapter or the hall of faith. And it is, but I just wanted to read one little verse or a couple of verses from this chapter, Hebrews 11. He goes on, he says um, that Noah and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and all these people put their faith in him and they were counted as righteous because of their faith. But then in, in verse 13, he says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would not have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And through this chapter, God goes on to talk about the better, the better, the better. And that's what he's been calling me to this year, a better perspective, something that's not of this earth, something that's beyond our heartaches, beyond our trials, beyond our pain. And then we can go to chapter 12 in Hebrews, and it says, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, a new perspective, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that's what God's called me to, a better perspective this year. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm not perfect at it. But it's it's just really been um, a beautiful thing that he's called attention to my heart. I this is such a rich episode, and I can't wait for people to listen to it because uh, so much is there. And I love that you went back to Hebrews because, as you mentioned, it's very rich. And I love this idea of eternal perspective because when we only look at what's happening here, we can get discouraged and depressed and and let life overwhelm us. But if we're looking for our heavenly home and the reward that awaits us there, uh, we're going to have a different kind of perspective. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you for joining us today on the Restory Show. I just so appreciate what you've had to share. And I'm so glad I've had the opportunity to meet you and share your story with listeners. So thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you, Mary. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Restory Show. I don't take that for granted. I'm so grateful for you. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, I pray for those who have been touched by suicide this week. 
not necessarily this week, but in their lives. And I pray for those left behind who are bewildered and hurting and the wound doesn't ever seem to go away. But Lord, I know that you empathize and I know that you know what it's like to walk alongside folks who are hurting. So I just pray for a special touch of your presence this week, tenderness and compassion that you have for people who have lost loved ones. And thank you too that um, for those who perhaps are thinking that the world would be better without them, I pray that you would intervene. I pray you would send people into their lives to show them kind of like um, it's a wonderful life, to show them that their life is absolutely vitally important. I pray that they would not make those kinds of choices to end their lives, but they would press into you and hear from you and know how valuable and beautiful and amazing they are. Help us all to have eyes wide open to the people that are hurting around us. Instead of being so consumed by our days and all the tasks on our to-do list, help us to open our eyes to the needs of others and to, to be responsive to your spirit when someone's broken around us. So thank you, Jesus, for showing us those kinds of folks and helping us when we are those kinds of folks. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like more information about today's show, head on over to marydemuth.com forward slash 4-19. And may you live a brand new, exciting, beautiful, amazing story 